Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including at Two Yellow Medals, Johnny R, Cyril O, Alan B, Angel O, and Bernie W. Dustin Garrow has returned to the show today. Dustin is Managing Principal at Nuclear Fuel Associates, a private Colorado-based boutique nuclear industry consultancy from uranium mining to utility relationships. Dustin has been in the business for 47 years and has closed billions of dollars in uranium supply deals. Dustin, welcome back to the show. Well, Andrew, yeah, I appreciate it. It's uh, been a little while. Uh, the market was uh, pretty quiet, uh, but that all changed, as you know, about uh, four to six weeks ago. So quite happy to uh, to talk about that. Yes, absolutely. And uh, boy, I want to say, when was the last time we spoke on this show, not including the uranium summits? Um, I want to say it was back sometime in uh, 2018 was the last time you're actually on the show. <laughs> So uh, good to have you. And uh, how are things at uh, Steamboat Springs? Uh, well, actually, we've had very nice weather, except for yesterday, a foot of snow. And right now it's 12 degrees out. So uh, we've got our traditional spring uh, snowstorms moving through. That's fantastic. <laughs> I like that. The, uh, the temperatures you're dealing with, um, it sounds like a perfect recipe to be uh, in the office with a nice hot cup of coffee or two. And I assume you're sheltering in place, as they call it up there in the States. Yeah, absolutely. And and we're kind of fortunate. Uh, you know, I think, as you know, Steamboat's a fairly small town. And uh, we've not dodged the the uh, COVID-19 problem, but uh, it's not been a, a real issue here yet. So we're we're thankful for that. Yeah, it is a good place to be. I'm looking at how this has played out. The mountains and the hills have have turned out to be uh, the better places to be, low population. So that's good, and and I I don't think you guys will have any issue up there, much like we, where we are here, very small town in the in the mountains here that where I live. So uh, it's it's been a good setup that way, at least for uh, for some of us, and and of course some have been been trapped in the cities. So, but we wish them all the best and to stay healthy. Let's get into it here. I, I want to just start off by asking about your thoughts on uranium impacts arising out of the Port Hope conversion facility suspension, and is UF6, EUP, and fabrication very sensitive here? Uh, well, I think, as you know, the uh, the conversion market had a major uh, change late 2017. You know, the prices for uh, conversion services had been below $5 a kilogram, and uh, Converdine, who is responsible for marketing out of the Metropolis uh, facility here in Illinois, uh, went out and, and contracted, I understand, for virtually all of the uh, available inventory of the UF6 services. Now, how do you do that? You provide natural U308 and money, and you get UF6 back. So that's how the transactions operate in that market. Uh, and then they announced the, uh, the, I guess, to use Cameco's term, the indeterminate shutdown of the facility at Metropolis, Illinois. 
and the price then has gone, you know, again from below five, and I believe it's uh, 22 right now. And new long-term contracts for conversion, I understand, are certainly above 15. Well, so then, uh, you know, Cameco with Port Hope, um, clearly Cameco is uh, is a good corporate citizen, as they've demonstrated with the Cigar Lake uh, shutdown. And, uh, you know, putting Port Hope on, uh, you know, I guess it's perhaps short-term care and maintenance. I think their, their strategy is a bit different than what uh, Converdine did. I don't think Cameco is planning to keep that facility down for any length of time, but based upon the provincial, I guess, guidance on restrictions, they certainly have had to go to a, uh, you know, a shutdown mode. Now, what does that mean? I think, uh, you know, they're saying, well, they'll do maintenance and kind of get the plant ready to bring it back. But, uh, you know, as we get into the uranium market, um, the, the facility at Port Hope has really become a focal point. I mean, there's actually, uh, last time I looked, a $2 difference uh, as a premium for material held at Port Hope. So, you know, it, it's rather than a Converdine or Comurex. So again, I think what it does is uh, further tightens the uh, the UF6 situation. Um, I think uh, transactions, you know, trying to find conversions services right now, it's not something I deal in that often, although, I, as you know, I was the vice president of marketing at Converdine for a while, so I'm, I have a sensitivity to it. But I think that's, you know, will it somehow upset the, the UF6 market? Depends on how long, you know, the, the, the shutdown is. Because, again, you won't get that material or those services back. That's another thing I'm sure we'll talk about in uranium is when you do put these things on care and maintenance, um, usually you're not going to get whatever is lost production-wise maybe till the later in the, the life of the facility or the mine. It won't be recaptured in the near term. How is this going to affect fuel fabrication? Uh, you know, hard to tell. I don't really deal in that area very much. I mean, it's a very specialized, highly technical uh, part of the industry. But again, what we're seeing, uh, you know, talking to people, uh, reading articles, is it depends on the duration of all this. You know, if, if the Port Hope shutdown is, is four weeks, six weeks, uh, that's different than if it's four months to six months. And I think we're still too early uh, to make a, a, you know, a solid judgment on that. Everyone is still optimistic that this, the wave will pass reasonably quickly and those, those uh, facilities will get back in operation. So anyway, you know, the, the, the Port Hope situation uh, kind of remains to be seen. But again, it's a big focal point in the uh, industry right now is uh, conversion services, obviously. Yes, absolutely. And I know that the fuel services site for Cameco is important and sensitive. I mean, it is a big part of their margins, important part of their margins. There's going to be some issues with making sure that that doesn't stay off too long. And it's interesting, you mentioned good corporate citizen. It's interesting when good corporate citizen goes hand in hand with good opportunity. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly right. So, here we go. Well, just briefly again, uh, thoughts on how long 
going outside of Port Hope, thoughts on how long these suspensions will last before going back to pre-COVID levels? Do you see that this might be a six to eight month deal? Shorter, what do you think on possibly like a cigar restart, for example? Well, yeah, I think the, uh, you know, the cigar restart clearly is, uh, is a front burner issue in the, in the industry. I wasn't a surprise when uh, Cameco just came out and said that that was going to be extended for a, you know an indefinite period because they really don't know. Again, you know, going back to the corporate citizen side, Cameco will not do anything that runs counter, obviously, to what the province health officials want to see. Now the question becomes, uh, as you say, will the shutdown be you know six weeks, two months? Uh, I think there is a motivation to, because MacArthur is shut down, you know, another 18 million pounds a year, to probably get Cigar back in operation in a, in a pretty uh, uh, reasonable time frame. I think when the, the province perhaps, you know, loosens their restrictions, I think we'll see Cameco moving to put Cigar back in operation. Uh, some speculation, again, early days, nobody really knows. Um, that it could be down three to four months. Um, well, if that's the case, you know, the, the average production is about a million and a half pounds a month. And, you know, Cameco gets around half that, give or take. Arano gets 37%, I think. And then there's two Japanese owners. Uh, it admits to one of the trading companies and uh, Tokyo Electric. But I think, you know, Arano, I'm hearing more and more uh, probably is is interested in getting cigar back in operation. They tend to get kind of uh, not you know let's use the term ignored in all of this because Cameco obviously is the the big player um, in in Canada. But you know Arano, it looks like they could lose seven or eight million pounds of production or available supply this year, depending on how long cigar is shut down. And normally they get about 20 million. That's out of the Athabasca, out of Kazakhstan, out of Niger. And so they're, you know, facing a pretty large deficit. And in fact, I'm hearing that they may be trying to cover that through market purchases and, a, you know, a, a program akin to what Cameco is doing. So right now it's, it's uh, you know, obviously I think it's one of the factors that's uh, moving the uranium price up. There's no question of that. And I'm sure we'll, we'll probably talk about that specifically. But I think, uh, again, once the restrictions are, are lifted for the fly-in, fly-out, uh, I don't know if you've been up there, but the, the workers are in very close proximity where they, they live uh, in support of the mine. So, you know, the Cameco's got to be very careful, and I know they will be. So I think that's, you know, will it be probably at least two months? I mean, we're, we're almost uh, through the first month of it, uh, but it could be three or four. So we'll just have to see. Great and, and good insights, good thoughts on that. And I certainly am in the camp that this is going to be a, a few months at least. So we'll see how things go. Now, the next question, and perhaps you can draw some comparison and conclusion to the last cycle, Dustin, but talk about this term contract non-disclosure and for the audience who doesn't know how spot and term prices are determined with ongoing trade activity. 
So you've got deals that are being done, at, but price reporters are generally being lazy for one reason or another, including non-disclosure. They're not reporting what those prices are. Can you talk about price disclosure and if transparency will arrive and start influencing equity prices? Yes, that's a, a bit of a broad subject. Yeah, the term contracting, uh, just a little bit of background. Uh, I went back and looked, I think it's the last 15 years. And of the total volume placed under new term contracts, about 70% was done, quote, off market. In other words, that's where the supplier and the consumer get together and negotiate a long-term contract. Unlike uh, some utilities that are required to come out with formal requests, um, Korea, Korea Hydronuclear, that by law they're required to distribute what becomes a public inquiry for future material. So the point is there's a real issue on transparency of terms and conditions because as you move away from the spot market, which is basically the price, and, and you know, so delivery term volume, uh, delivery dates obviously are, are points of, of discussion, but, but it's all pretty much driven on who's going to offer the best price. And those kind of transactions get fairly well reported. Uh, again, I don't, I've not had a problem of, uh, you know, a great disparity between reported spot prices and then what's actually going on. But in the term market, um, this is where it's interesting. The utilities uh, over the last, say, decade or so have really come to the point where they see this as they're competing against the other utilities for that supply. And that's both in their own region, say within the US, but also uh, across the, the oceans. In other words, uh, as you know, the EU is better covered long-term than the US, but they're gonna start coming in the market and you know, looking at long-term supplies, just like interestingly enough, I think some of the Japanese utilities are beginning to look at the market kind of, you know, 2025 and out. So what we see is, and, and you know, Cameco has commented on it, uh, they've done what, 36 million pounds of new forward contracts. And I think uh, from what their, their comments have been, the prices, however they're determined, are probably have, a, as, as Grant Isaac says, a four, in front of the, the number. Well, now that's not what's purported by, say, UX and trade tech. Now, a couple of things. First of all, quickly to dismiss kind of the UX price uh, for term contracts, anything that's beyond spot, which is normally six to 12 months, UX looks at as the term market. So it gets, uh, uh, let's use the term contaminated with midterm offers and transactions. In other words, that, that market that's two or three years out where a financial entity, a Macquarie Bank, or a trader and a Tochu or Traxxas will acquire spot material, finance it at a very low rate, deliver it on. And uh, you know that price has been in the midterm below 30 for quite a while. And if you look at the definition, you know, UX reports the lowest term offer 
that they're aware of. So that captures that midterm market. So the longer term, which uh, is, is different, uh, they really don't report that. Now on the trade tech side, I understand in the term market, there may have been perhaps one supplier that was offering very low prices. Now I'm not aware of the volumes, the timing, who it is, what's their general reliability, but I think then that gets reported as the market price. So I think as, as the term contracting market picks up, we'll start to see more pricing kind of leak out. And well, how does that happen? Uh, what I've seen in the past is if you're a producer, you author X, you don't get a contract, well, then you know generally that your price was not the most competitive. And so through, by I guess, the process of elimination, you can kind of begin to home in on where the price might have been for a new long-term contract. So it's a little bit, it's an imprecise science, let's put it that way. Uh, but I think we're going to start to see more and more information. Uh, just quickly on the term market, I attended a conference in Washington in January, Nuclear Energy Institute. Uh, most of the U.S. utilities were, were represented there, the fuel groups. And it became pretty clear that they were looking to come in to the more traditional term market. In other words, they saw a need as those unfilled requirements keep getting closer and closer that they need to begin to cover off. They may not like the prices they see, but you know there is a point where you say, hey, I've got to bite off on that $40 plus contract. And we had two of the big ones come in, one in January, uh, one in February, uh, for what I would call more traditional term contracts. In other words, uh, the delivery started 20, 2024 and went out to 2028 or 2030 uh, in general. And so it was beyond the carry trade or midterm market. So there was uh, optimism, cautious optimism that we would start to see that term contracting begin to pick up. Now, obviously, when COVID-19 showed up, um, what we've seen, I think, is the, the fuel groups uh, have a lot on their plates. And uh, having worked uh, at a fuel group in the past, for example, during refuelings, which in the U.S. are spring and fall, and I, I saw somewhere that most of the U.S. Uh, reactors are going to be refueled this year, but the fuel groups get involved in the refuelings. They tend to go out to the site. They do fuel startup tests and all that. So I think with a bit of a uncertainty on the refuelings because of uh, uh, social distancing requirements, that's been a little bit of a, a gray area for the fuel groups. Um, but we're hearing that maybe they'll start to come back into the term market. And so, you know, I'm interested to see if uh, even if they're they're not we're not out of the, the COVID-19 environment. I think some of the utilities will begin to look at that, you know, traditional long-term market. So I'm optimistic by maybe mid-year, we'll be seeing more activity. Uh, you know, UX reported last year, I think about 95 
million pounds was placed under contract, which is well below the historic average, which has been like 150. So again, I think uh, the utilities are, and they're also seeing what's going on on the supply side. And I think to some that's making them a bit uh, uncomfortable. So to get back to the original question, I think we will see more, more pricing uh, being made available. I think we'll start, we'll see a pretty noticeable change in the term price, uh, uh, the, the prices that are being reported, and uh, but we'll just have to see. Yes, and I think people can listen to what you said and put together in their mind a few areas where you can see how these prices can be manipulated. For example, you can certainly manipulate price on low volume. The market has enough holes in it. With all the activity that's going on in the market, one, can you speak to sentiment that has potentially stepped up since this has started? What are you seeing on your side as far as sentiment inquiries over to your business? And then also with what's going on in the market, do you see that utilities are starting to get concerned about potentially coming back into the market, seeking term deals as a result of what's happened? Do you see that the timeline has maybe come forward a little bit? Well, again, I think, uh, you know, as I said, the the meeting in January was, was enlightening because, uh, you know, the utilities, again, you could take away from that, that they were beginning to, um, you know, I feel uncomfortable might be too strong. It was, you know, they have a, a responsibility to fuel these plants and, uh, you know, the, the, that requires responsibility was now continuing to get closer and closer um, from an unfilled requirement standpoint. And so I think that's, they were just as part of their normal uh, procurement planning, I got a sense that more of them were thinking, well, maybe I better look at the market. I think things like the shutdown of MacArthur, I think the cutbacks in Kazakhstan pre-COVID-19, uh, they were beginning to see that that could, you know, was going to be having an impact and they need to cover their their requirements. I mean, they're, uh, the units have to operate. And so they need to be, you know, they look, they look pretty far out in the future. Just as a quick side note, when we talk about refuelings, it was interesting. Tennessee Valley Authority said, well, we need to continue on with our refueling at Sequoia, too because it's been in planning for three years. So keep in mind that, you know, this isn't like a, a, an oil or gas plant or a coal plant. You know, this has a very long planning horizon. And so, you know, and in the US, uh, you know, I'll keep referring back to the situation here because it's still the biggest program, still has the largest requirements per year of uranium, and it's the most uncovered forward uh, delivery commitments of, of any of the regions. And so, you know, I think they're just looking around. They've also been uh, uh, consuming inventory. Uh, that, that you could see through the EIA uh, data that's published each year in May, that they, the utilities in general were working down some of their inventory levels. And so, you know, they're looking at reduced inventory levels, they're looking at uh, production, um, you know, issues out there. The WNA report came out in September, for example, and, and for the first time that I can recall, um, there are three scenarios each showed 
a deficit in uranium that had to be filled by what the WNA working group had identified as unspecified sources. In other words, expansion of production, uh, inventories, wherever they might be, that kind of thing. So I think it's, it's again, it's a, what I would call a confluence of events where they're looking at, you know, their needs are coming closer, the, you know, production, uh, uh, you know, Rio Tinto exits the industry, cutbacks and all of that. So I think they were moving toward more term activity anyway. Yeah, I think that's interesting you mentioned that because I think there might come a point in this market going forward where the utility uh, buyer picks up the phone, calls their broker and says, buy uranium, buy uranium. And the broker says, from who, from who? You know, and that's happened in the past. We've had instances. I can't remember a time when you couldn't find material, but I do recall a a situation. I think it was uh, one of the uh, Texas utilities said, hey, they came out for spot material and they got one offer. Now, this was years ago, but again, the market has been uh, in that kind of a, you know, as, as UX uh, calculates uh, on occasion, a deficit. You look at what your requirements are, what secondary supplies might be, what production is, and you go, well, we're moving from oversupply through a balanced market very quickly and then into a deficit. And this year, clearly, with what's going on in production, we will see a pretty substantial deficit between sources of supply and reactor requirements. Yes, absolutely, we will. Speak just a little bit more to what the utilities are thinking at this point as far as the election overhang that we have coming up. And of course, we still have this nuclear fuel working group determination that still needs to come out that likely with COVID right now, none of this stuff will be resolved likely until the last quarter of the year, if we're lucky. So we've got the election and the nuclear fuel working group coming up. Do you see that utilities really are going to wait until this stuff is in the clear, including COVID, of course, before decisions are really made on a bigger scale? Uh, Well, kind of let me uh, address those in reverse order. The election, uh, I have not heard any of the fuel groups say, well, we're going to hold off on buying because if the uh, administration changes and there's somehow an anti-nuclear move, you know, in the White House and, uh, you know, I don't they I don't think they're looking at that. I think the view continues to be nuclear is pretty much base load. You're going to need it. In the states where uh, the reactors were at risk, as you know, be it New York, uh, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, uh, again, we had the states step in with the zero emission credit programs to, to quote, at least for the the near term, save some of the reactors that were, were being threatened by low gas prices. And that's another thing, just quickly on uh, demand under, you know, effects from COVID-19, you've probably seen the French have said they expect their nuclear generation now to be down 20 to 25 percent from what they had forecast at the start of the year. Um, well, that makes sense. I mean, the French program uh, is basically not all nuclear, but pretty close. And they actually use some of the reactors in what's called load following. In other words, they they up and, and they flex the, the, the reactor operations 
at, at the kind of further up on the generation curve. And so it's not surprising that they would see a noticeable cutback. In the US, the EIA just put out their short-term energy outlook for on the 7th of April. So they've attempted to model in COVID-19 effects on the economy. When does it restart, all of that. But anyway, just uh, coal looks like it'll be down 20% this year in the United States, uh, but nuclear less than 2%. So again, that just underscores the fact that these reactors are base load. And so if you're the fuel manager, fuel planning group, you really have to look towards making sure you've got material available. Now, back on the working group, um, as you know, that was established last July. It was going to be 90 days, got extended for another 30 days, fell into a bit of uh, a limbo, let's put it that way. But in uh, uh, congressional testimony, in on, I believe it was March 2nd, uh, Senator Barrasso of Wyoming, who's been very active in support of the domestic uranium production industry, uh, put that question to the new Secretary of Energy. When will the working group report be released? Uh, the secretary said he thought that night, which would have been March 2nd, and surely by the next day. Well, it didn't get released. And then we had COVID-19 show up. So it got kind of lost in the, you know, let's say in the, the background noise. Now, I have heard that there might be some funding, uh, that the report could come out, that apparently it's done, um, and there could be funding in the phase four uh, legislation. You know, we just had phase three, the two trillion with a T uh, dollar program, and phase four, it's, you know, being kicked around right now, uh, has, quote, infrastructure projects and uh, energy. In other words, you know, the other kind of interesting energy uh, project was buying oil at very depressed prices to uh, top off the strategic petroleum reserve in Texas, which a lot of people have ignored for a very long time. But the U.S. does have a strategic petroleum reserve. Um, the purchases for that apparently started and then stopped due to the funding issue, but they, that might be included in phase four. And also, again, something on the uranium side. So again, the utilities I know had been looking at the working group outcome. I think they were pretty comfortable that we'll, it will be virtually all US government buying. Really, the, the Department of Defense needs, which don't really show up, you know, till end of this decade, early the next decade. Uh, but the thought is they would buy now and stockpile because if they do have needs 10 years out, uh, if there's no U.S. industry left, then the pounds can't get out of the ground. But I think the utilities at that, uh, you know, early, early in the year were saying, well, there could be a change. The president might say, well, I still want the utilities involved. So anyway, they were, you know, kind of looking at that report as, you know, they'd like to see it released. Then it removes any potential uncertainty 
of them being involved like they would have been uh, involved on the 232 proposed program, which obviously the, the president didn't support. So I think, uh, but as we go forward, if for some reason the, the working group report just doesn't see the light of day, I think some of these other factors will kind of over, will outweigh waiting to do new term contracting. I think it will, you know, again, the, the supply situation and all of that will kind of uh, carry the day to where the utilities will enter the traditional long-term market. Right. I think so too. And, and the reason I was asking about the election to some degree is if there is always, there's always the potential risk of a rollback of some kind of domestic policy to where the utilities would be potentially let off the hook, for lack of better words. That was the reason, the tie-in with the potential change in administration. And then also the government year-end is September 30th. So, you know, do we see something prior to that and in light of COVID and, and so forth? You know, I'm, I'm skeptical that we will, but you're absolutely right. At some point, they'll have to move forward, even if nothing does come out. I do suspect at some point it'll be resolved. It might be much longer than we think. And back to the election, Dustin, who is getting elected this year in the U.S.? <laughs> I have my own thoughts, but I'll hold them for now. But uh, yeah, that's going to be obviously a very a contentious campaign. It's already started. I think, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm biased, but it's likely in my mind that Mr. Trump will be back in the White House. But one never knows. I, again, no one thought he would ever be in the White House. But I think, uh, as you point out, and just quickly back on the election, that, that was a concern, I think, amongst the U.S. producers. I think they'd lobbied pretty hard for uh, a suite, a portfolio, or a commitment from the government several years. Because if it's a year-by-year -year budget item, as you know, it could be uh, eliminated from the budget with a stroke of a pen in the middle of the night somewhere. And they really can't make the commitments to bring production back into operation, spend the capital, hire the people, uh, get out just for a one-year program, uh, you know, year by year with the Department of Defense. And that hadn't been uh, settled yet. In other words, you know, the there had been the $150 million proposed for the 2021 budget, which, as you say, starts here October 1st. But it was, well, how do we get from here to the end of September without funding. So how could they perhaps come up with, and this was pre-COVID-19. And uh, so there were a number of open issues still. How would they allocate that money? Would it have to just be competitive bids? Would it, uh, you know, would the government uh, say, hey, two or three of you guys will be picked to survive? I, it was all still up in the air. So, uh, so again, even if the report comes out, there's still a number of issues that need to be addressed. Let's put it that way. It'll be interesting to see what ends up happening on that front. I know that you probably hear some of that information given you're consulting with energy fuels and know that they're at the forefront activity with the government on working through some of those issues. Well, let's talk a little bit more about another topic. We had a member who wrote in this question and wants to know, what your opinion is, or what your view is on this. You've known John Borja for a long time, 
and you know a lot of participants in the sector across the globe. This member wanted to know how you see the Deep Yellow business plan as different or similar to other companies in the sector. And the member referenced uh, UEX and Mega Uranium for comparison. Do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, as you say, I've known John now for a, a number of years. I started working with Paladin, you know, early last decade, and then ended up uh, as uh, their marketer for 12 years. Um, just as a comment on on Deep Yellow, I think that's part of a, a bigger strategy, and and I don't know what it is, but you know, John views it as uh, as one key component of what Deep Yellow wants to do or sees the opportunities in the supply sector. Uh, I know he's been looking at uh, other acquisitions. I mean, he's made that very clear. Uh, I think he'd like to, you know, at Paladin, the objective was to become a, you know, an 18 to 20 million pound per year producer. So we had Langer, Kalakira, you know, looking at other projects, uh, Australia, uh, Canada. I think his, his, uh, Strategy now is a little uh, less aggressive because it, it, you know, the market is remains a little unclear out there. But a lot of the companies I think are single project oriented, and and I don't want to you know necessarily say that's a bad strategy, but I think they you know they're looking at well we'll develop this one one project, and then maybe there's something else out in the future. But I know John. Uh, uh, is doing at Deep Yellow what he did at Paladin. He's basically trying to put together a, a you know, what he would call a mining house. Um, so he's got, you know, the geology, the, the you know, the, the accounting groups, the, the technical people uh, on, you know, inside the, the company to where when things come together, he doesn't have to look around and go, well, now what do, now what do I do? I think that's, an, and I think you and I have talked about it, one of the issues that some of the, the new development companies face is when the market does improve, uh, they've got to hire a bunch of people, they've got to go out and get term contracts, get financing. So there's a lot that needs to be done. And, and I think what was a key to Paladin's success was that the company was kind of put together already when all the parts came came together at one point. I did a forensic review of it once, and it was pretty amazing. I mean, actually, the contracts came in place, which satisfied the banks, which then allowed the construction to start. And, you know, Langer was built in like 13 months from all of that, the mining permit being, the final permit being issued. And so it was a, but it was a commitment to where, you know, certainly John and the board said, we believe that this is going to happen. We will fund putting together a, a comprehensive company. And then that allowed us to look at other uh, acquisitions kind of right off the bat. So it, it's kind of fundamentally different than what I think I see at a number of the other companies, which are taking a more gradual or a, and a single project approach, which again, is, I'm not saying that's wrong. It's just a different business model than certainly than what I've seen John uh, develop and implement in the past. And on the consulting front at Nuclear Fuel Associates, Dustin, are you considering new clients 
or are there any companies out there that have your interest? Um, yeah, well, I mean, not surprisingly, as we've seen the market pretty uh, pretty quiet for a while, I'll be you know diplomatic. As it's now starting to pick up, I mean, the price has gone up 30% in the last five, six weeks. Uh, that starts to then, uh, I think, change the perspective on uh, certainly some of the uh, the producer side. As you know, it's, it's kind of my area of expertise, term marketing, you know, getting those term contracts in place, which then trigger the availability of financing. And they really are a springboard to allow you to move forward. Yes, I can say that certainly increased interest is being shown, uh, particularly as, uh, you know, the producers and actually some of the investor groups begin to look at you know, what does it take to get term contracts? And I think uh, it, it's beginning to to kind of sink in that it is a uh, complicated process. Uh, you've got to have a plan in place ahead of time. It, it's not like, uh, you know, the, the price goes up to pick a number, uh, 50, 55, where you think your your project can, you know, make make a good return and you can move forward. Um, you're not going to sign a million pound contract with that unknown utility. You know, the phone rings and whoever it is says, I'm ready to sign. Um, what I've seen is as you try to bring on new projects, uh, the utilities, depending on the market environment, um, will say, hey, I'll give you a two, three hundred thousand pound a year kind of starter contract to see does the project get built? Is the are the economics what you think they'll be? Uh, can you handle the logistics of shipping from wherever your your project's located? Because again, this is the most transported fuel in the in the utility sector. I mean, you you got to move it around globally. Um, and then if yes, the the projects come on, they get deliveries, then they'll go for bigger contracts. So I think the new producers are going to have to. Say your project is a two to three million pound a year producer, and you probably have to get a couple million under contract, maybe a million and a half. That's probably five, six contracts. So you've really got to go out and talk to the utilities and uh, you know convince them that you're going to be a long-term supply source. So again, I think so as we start to hopefully see the market evolve into one where term contracting becomes more of a regular process. I think uh, people are realizing that, uh, you know, that's an area that's as important as project optimization. In other words, going out to see how you can continue to keep, you know, get your costs down. But, you know, dealing with the ultimate consumers uh, is a, uh, an area of expertise all on its own. And there aren't many people left that have done that, particularly for the new small producers, because we haven't had any. You know, since the last uplift, there's been no, you know, new producers coming in the market. So, to, you know, long, long answer to your question about is that area starting to pick up? Uh, no question. Good points. And I think that people in the business, some people in the business severely underestimate and even, you know, market participants, investors severely underestimate the complications to actually get these deals done. 
And I think that that's an interesting area that, that people sometimes forget about. Um, just for the record, now, who are you consulting with? Can you share with maybe a couple names that are public uh, that you are consulting with at this point? Yeah, I think, you know, you earlier mentioned Energy Fuels. Uh, they were actually my first consulting uh, client after uh, departing Paladin. And so, yeah, I do provide commercial marketing, overall strategy. I've known the management group there for a very long time. We've worked together at other companies. Um, so that's one. And the other is Bannerman. Uh, you know, I had had uh, discussions with them for quite a while. I mean, their project uh, is clearly different than, say, Langer, but it's, it's in Namibia. And uh, so I also provide kind of, uh, I guess my title is senior strategic consultant, but I work with Brandon Monroe and uh, the board on, you know, big project, open pit, low grade, you know, need to beneficiate the ore. Um, you know, so it's, it, it's kind of a different bit longer term um, project. Uh, and so those are really my two main clients other than uh, Yellow Cake. Uh, I was involved, uh, as you know, in the IPO of Yellow Cake in July of 18, and so I'm still the chief commercial officer. And so that's led to um, really over the last uh, two or three weeks, uh, you know, extensive briefings with uh, some of the investor groups, either that are actively involved in Yellow Cake right now or are seriously looking at coming back into the uranium space. Uh, I have another uh, conference call tonight, Friday night my time. So there's been a lot of kind of one hour market briefings that are going on. And it's interesting, uh, Andrew, it's, it's global. It's uh, the con you know European continent, London, uh, Australia, um, Singapore, Hong Kong, Kuala Lumpur, so, I mean, it's a broad-based interest in the uranium space uh, by the inv large investor groups that, uh, you know, are saying, hey, you know, we believe the story, we've been waiting on the timing, and is this 30% price rise, is this the catalyst? And, and again, that's, you know, my answer, of course, knowing, you know, you know me, is, well, it, it might be. I'm an economist by training, so, you know, if this, then that, but if that, then this. So, anyway. <laughs> well, <laughs> expand on that for just a moment, Dustin, because we've had these issues where we've seen interest come into the market, say, late 2016, early 2017. We had a pop in 2018, and both times things stagnated, went back down. And then, of course, COVID and the broad market steps in with panic and we actually get new price lows for equities. Speak to just interest for a moment. Have you have you seen, have you compared a little bit, reflected on these last pops over the last couple of years? And are you really seeing people come out of the closet at this point? I think the answer to that is pretty much yes. And just, I mean, it's probably makes sense to just quickly talk about the Iranian market. And, you know, we went through that period, like you say, late 18, some of it driven, I think, by the yellow cake acquisition of that more than 8 million pounds from Kazakhstan, which kept that material out of the spot market, which, uh, you know, they, they had a, a challenge to get that placed somewhere. 
And then we had a number of quote, what are called financial buyers come in, some investment groups that, you know, invest in the equities. They might invest in a UPC yellow cake to get exposure to the uranium price there. And then they also buy physical. You know, some of them have set up storage accounts. They came in and bought, you know, I saw estimates of 10 to 12 million pounds back in late 18. But then clearly, you know, we fell into the the market in, in 19, where it dropped down to the 24 to 26 trading range in March and just stayed there, I mean, for a year. And, and yeah, it looked like something would happen, but we had 232. Then that, you know, evolved into the working group. I think the utilities continued to be fairly comfortable that there was enough supply available because, you know, our volume last year, uh, you know, UX reported, I think, 64 million pounds, which was above kind of the average. I mean, it was below 2018, which was a, a record year at 90, uh, which helped move the price up, obviously, to that 28, 29. Um, so I think what we're seeing is, you know, yeah, still quite a bit of spot activity, but then the price didn't move. And so I think now what the the optimism is, with cigar down, which could be, as we spoke, several months, we've got, uh, you know, the Kazakhs cutting back uh, could be a total of 10 million pounds out of around 50 to 52 that they've been planning to produce. So that's a pretty big uh, cut out of an already cut back Kazakh production. And again, keep in mind when they come back on, and this has been an observation uh, from like UX, uh, so it's just not me. Uh, they go back to drilling well fields. They then have to put the lixivity into it, and you know their de their decline curves are such. The the ramp up I understand is fairly slow, but then it plateaus for quite a while, and then it drops off fairly uh, slowly. Unlike say Wyoming, where you put the lixivity into the well fields and you get kind of a spike. And, and so there's a whole different um, production plan. But the point being is when they come back and start putting the well fields in, we could see a bit of a lag on when Kazakh production comes, you know, kind of back up to that 50 plus or minus million pounds per year. So, you know, we'll just have to, I think all of that is beginning to be absorbed by the market. And uh, the other was Cameco. I mean, as they made it very clear, they didn't buy as much in 19 as they kind of had planned to. They actually uh, utilized some inventory and uh, they expected to, you know, kind of ramp up their spot buying program in 2020. Um, and now I think it, it's even more so with the cut, you know, they, they as I've said, they get affected by the cutback in Kazakhstan. Obviously they lose that, you know, it's, it's less than a million pounds a month out of the cigar shutdown, but their need for material, it, you know, has gotten incrementally greater. And so, you know, the rumors are that, you know, last month there was 9 million pounds transacted in the spot market. And I think, uh, you know, the, the producer segment which could be more than chemical buying, uh, I heard was at least 2 million, so probably three or more. 
So, you know, I think that what we're seeing is just a, a bit of a different um, effect on the market. It, it's being driven by even more supply cutbacks and uh, the utilities are buying some, they're coming in the market. And certainly the intermediaries, the trading companies and others, uh, I think are in the accumulation mode or they have been rather than uh, disposing of inventory, uh, which they do kind of off and on. So I think, you know, we might be seeing the market, hopefully we don't see it drop back below 30. Um, but, you know, the last couple of days, uh, the uplift has been uh, more modest, 50 cents a day, which still is not, you know, trivial, uh, but it had gone up, you know, a dollar and a half uh, prior. So I think we'll just have to kind of wait and see. I've heard all kinds of different logic. The market will go to the mid 30s. It'll stall out, uh, but it might be the new trading range. Uh, it'll go to 40. Or to, uh, yeah, I heard yesterday some uh, folks think it'll be 40 to 50 by the end of the year. Could be. I mean, I can't say it won't. Um, I'm not hearing too much, though, on the downside. Again, I think people are realizing, uh, let me just, as we talked earlier, the reactors look like they'll operate the Chinese, even though their GDP took a big hit first quarter, no surprise. They just came out yesterday and said, hey, you know, the plants are operating, the ones under construction don't look like they're going to be delayed. So they're, you know, continuing to move forward. So, you know, we'll just see. I think this, um, could be different than, as you say, the last uh, price uplifts, which then just kind of stalled out and, and and sagged. So, but it's still early, as you know. We, we don't know the the extent and the timing. So, yes, and there's certainly been an uptick in inquiries, uh, discussions. Uh, we've seen that over here. We've seen a lot of, and, and I know you mentioned that there's been an uptick in requests. Uh, for you to be on different meetings and, and lots of inquiries coming into your business and to the major producers. So let's talk about yellow cake in a moment because uh, I, I want to ask you a little bit about that, but but over to Cameco and Kazetaprom, you know, one of the things that they haven't done as a result of this low price environment and tough market times, most likely, is that they haven't reinvested in their business. And as a result of that, I think production, you know, you talked about Kazetaprom and the well fields and so forth you know, their profiles are declining and they're going to have to reinvest significantly in their business in order to get their production back up to the way it was many, many, many years ago. And so I think that's going to be a very slow process, potentially still painful um, as the market might have other ideas. Um, so I think that'll be interesting to see how that goes. And I think it will be slow, which obviously adds to the good things about this market going forward. What are your thoughts on moving over to yellow cake for a moment, and then I want to come back to Cameco. What are your thoughts on the substantial net asset value discounts with the publicly traded physical uranium holding companies? And will yellow cake look to add to their holdings this year? And do you see either yellow cake or UPC as potential acquisition targets over this cycle? <laughs> Okay, just so you know, to, to go on the record, I do not speak officially for Yellow Cake. That would be Andre Leibenberg. 
but uh, but yeah, first of all, the the net asset value issue. I think you know that discounting that we'd seen was a f- reflection of of the market. In other words, uh, you know the the market, as you know, had been in that trading range virtually since a year ago, twenty four to twenty six dollars. So I think the the investor side was uh, pessimistic on when will the price go up. So that's when you see the uh, the uh, equity value drop below the NAV. And, and it was persistent. And that's why Yellowcake instituted the share buy, buyback program. Uh, I mean, it's modest, but they keep, keep, uh, keep doing it. We had a roadshow earlier in the year. I think it was in January. And some of the investors were, were saying, yeah, you know, a share buyback, okay you know was uh they didn't like the idea though of like selling product to get pound you know dollars in and buy shares all that that you know if you wanted to uh, use some of the cash on hand that was fine um but i think it was more of a reflection just of the the fact that the uranium market hadn't been responsive well now i think we're beginning to see as uh you know the uranium price going up. Uh, you know yellow cake share price. Uh, what today was um, two thirty pence. So I mean, and I think not too long ago it was like one seventy. So I, I think it's still at a discount just because uranium price has started to move up uh, so strongly. But I think we'll we'll see that situation correct itself. Let's say that. Um, in not the too distant future. So at that point, will yellow cake, uh, for example, trigger some of their option? Again, we've got uh, the ability to buy up to $100 million of uranium from Kazadam Prom um, at market. Um, yeah, I think it's got to be looked at. There's no question. I think the board and senior management there are very sensitive to you know, we probably should add to our uh, 9.4 million pounds, I think it is. But, but you know, it, it's not on the uh, immediate front burner. But I think, again, if uh, uh, the stars align better, then probably will be seriously looked at. I see UPC did a registration recently, but uh, it sounds like they're more focused on a share buyback, which, uh, you know, I find kind of interesting with the way uh, you know the the price of uranium is going and the uh, the equities, but that's you know we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But I think they're getting positioned to have funds available to do something. So I think at the end of the day, the answer to your question is, yeah, I think it will be looked at. And you know, yellow cake triggered part of the option last year what, 34 million, 35 million worth, give or take. So uh, so we'll see. Yeah, I think they're, and, and you know, all of that needs to be factored in. When prices start to go up, the utilities actually start to buy because it's a signal of future supply availability issues. I think, again, the intermediaries start to buy. If I'm a trader, I'm going to say, hey, I want to go long or more long than I am. I think some of the financial buyers, they've said, the guys that buy physical, um, yeah, I'm going to come in and buy more when I'm convinced the price 
is is a in a sustainable upward trend. Uh, so again, I think you're going to have it's not just going to be utility buying. It's going to be, you know, obviously the producers that need to fill forward delivery commitments, and you know the financial buyers, the traders, uh, the sequesterers, which is UPC and yellow cake. So you could see a real demand push in the market, the spot market, and we'll see if there's enough uh, inventory available to, because uh, it's not going to come out of fresh production. Um, you know, is there enough inventory available to meet that demand? And usually that suggests upward pressure on the price. Yeah, I think buybacks in certain cases can work well. Yeah. And then, of course, as we've seen, in most cases, they don't work out so well. But I think that uh, there's there's a certain set of parameters that, that people have to apply before using those. But I think that they do make sense in the case where you have a, a net asset value that's substantially discounted. And in the current structure, speaking to these uh, uranium holding companies, it, it can make sense under certain conditions, especially depending on what market conditions are like as well. And then with net asset value, I think you made a good point that in market conditions where sentiment is not that great, these discounts to NAV, specifically speaking to these uranium holding companies like Yellowcake and UPC, the discounts to NAV occur because of market conditions, because of sentiment, but then also because the market discounts the G&A cost that is a, a monthly outflow. That's also part of that consideration. But when you have a rising uh, price environment, bull market sentiment is high, I see that that spread will close and possibly go to a premium. That should be kept in mind. I want to talk a little bit about Cameco now. Buying spot material in excess of 30 a pound, what is your view on them doing that in size in this market above, you know, at 30 or above? Do you see that they really will do that in notable size, Dustin? And then if conditions with suspensions, et cetera, inventory going to zero, et cetera, occur, no depth in the spot market or prices that are not favorable for Cameco in the spot market, do you see them potentially borrowing material from physical holding companies that is already stored at their own facilities? Yeah, I think that, you know, not speaking for Camago, but seeing what they've, they've been doing, and they've been pretty public, I think, in their quarterly calls, uh, Tim Gitzel and, and Grant Isaac are, are very, very forthcoming with what they're doing. Um, yeah, they're in a, a very interesting situation. Obviously, if you look at their portfolio, and they do publish that table on, well, if the spot goes to this, this is what it does to their uh delivery uh, price. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, they'd like to buy all of what they need, pick a number. I think for this year it was 15 million. They were going to buy, they needed to purchase, I think, 20 to 22. And, you know, normally about 70% of that is anticipated from the spot market. They'd like to buy it, of course, cheap, but they'd also like to see the price increase because that helps drive the term price, I mean, it's not a direct link between spot and term, but clearly there is some influence, let's put it that way. So I think, you know, when, when they get above 30, you know, into the mid 30s, that's when, you know, it becomes a, 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 a more complex decision. So that's why I think they are, you know, probably buying pretty good 
volumes now. Um, but you're right, at some point, does the market uh, dry up effectively where they can't get the, 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 the material in the form they need? Because keep in mind, they deliver both U308 and UF6. Uh, you know, is it the right location? Maybe the customer wants it somewhere else. Um, <coughs> excuse me. If I was, you know, management at Cameco, and I know they're, you know, a reasonably conservative group, um, they've probably put in place some contingent loan agreements. Now, are those with utilities that have, you know, large inventories, maybe at the, you know, at, at Port Hope, perhaps? Now, you get to the sequesterers. In other words, would UPC or Yellow Cake lend? You know, Yellow Cake's made it clear that's not part of our business model. In other words, you know, UPC had done some lending, not large volumes, and I think they, they basically collapsed all their loans because you get into some real issues. Um, and I've, I've been involved with a trading company here in, in Denver, and, you know, we did loans, but then you get into the uh, collateral issue. So if you lend someone, let's pick a number, a million pounds, the market's 20 they have to give you collateral of 20 million normally in an irrevocable letter of credit so in other words if they default then you've got in theory the value and then you go out and replace the material now a couple of issues there in a rising market you've got to re-collateralize you know almost weekly so the the lender isn't short on collateral value so that's one thing it becomes a, a real financial pain some of the deals i've seen is every month well you know if the price goes up ten dollars in a month which it can you know you are really short collateral until it's it's redone now the other thing is if the market is tight you might have that letter of credit that's equal to the then spot price you might not be able to go find that million pounds. So, you know, I think the UPC Yellow Cake, they're committing to their shareholders that the value is there and in the asset. And so, I, I, you know, I can't, you never say never, but at the end of the day, you know, you don't say, well, I'm going to put the shareholders at risk for some return. You know, the, the loan values have been pretty low. Uh, that might change. But again, I think it's a risk that, you know, we've talked about it at Yellow King. You go, I don't think for the return, it, it's, it's something we want to consider. So again, but that does that mean a utility where they have a big, you know, say you're a Japanese utility. Uh, you don't need uranium maybe for five years. And, you know, uh, a chemical comes in and says, hey, I'd like to be able to borrow that and I'll replace it in kind within the next X. You know, that was a loan between Cameco and Arano when MacArthur was shut down. You know, one year's uh, of uh, Arano's share, 5.4 million pounds, was lent from Cameco to the French, which again suggests they don't have a big inventory sitting around but it's to be replaced in kind 
I think now by the end of 23, Adam MacArthur. So it's different than going to a UPC or a yellow cake and saying, hey, you've got a big uh, amount, you know, a large volume. We'd like to borrow it. I just think the risk profile, not that Cameco would be a bad risk. It's the market could get out of control. And it's just, I don't think it's likely. Let's put it that way. You bring up some interesting points, and it's an interesting issue where you have, you know, Cameco being kind of the the blue chip producer, if you will. Yeah. With obviously mine capacities to replace that material, whether you do it with some kind of uh, interest in dollars or you do it in interest of barrels of uranium. And of course, letters of credit or, you know, performance payment bond type arrangements to to make sure that there is that uh, certainty. So you've got that situation there where they have the production capacity, but you're right with the market rising, that can be an issue. And then, of course, you bring up a really good point that I don't think gets thought about much is there are utilities with some nice inventory that they probably have relationships with that could possibly fill that gap if they got into some type of situation. So you bring up a good point there. That'll be interesting to see how that goes and uh, see how things go with these suspensions and with the inventory drawdowns. You know, we know that they uh, they do have a UF6 lending arrangement that they've stated in their MDNA. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that too on that front with Port Hope being down briefly here. Well, Dustin, any activity on the conference front? I'm assuming you're going to be doing more virtual conferences for the time being. Uh, is there anything coming up for you that uh, you're looking forward to come out? Um, any reports? Um, I know that EIA's got a report coming out in May. Anything on the conference front? What's going on for you over the next few months? Well, again, you know, just the, the industry conferences, unfortunately, the world nuclear fuel market was going to meet in Montreal late May. That tends to be a, a pretty good conference. You know, it's smaller. Uh, it's 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 more I don't want to say you know or, or less structured than some. Uh, obviously, that's been postponed, which uh, is unfortunate. I, I think the next, if we just look at industry conferences, the next get together is probably going to be London in September, um, assuming that you know opens up a bit. Um, but yeah, just report wise, WNA actually they're beginning to work on the the 2021 market report. Uh, so, but but that again is, you know, we just had the 2019 report released. Uh, we'll get the EIA uranium marketing data in May, as you point out, which really is, you know, kind of the official data source for the U.S. Uh, utility industry. And then the uh, Euratom Supply Agency annual report will be out kind of mid-year, and that'll do the same for the, the European uh, utilities. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm scheduled for another interview uh, late next week, um, so there'll be kind of that that activity going on. But, uh, but yeah, the chance for, like, the industry to, quote, get together, um, there'll, there'll be the NEI one-day meeting, like was in January, schedule for July, and we'll see if that actually takes place. But, uh, you know, everything, as you point out, is all video phone conferences anymore, which, uh, you know, we'll see. It is interesting that they're now saying that, you know, big business is going to realize 
you don't have to get on a plane to go everywhere. A lot of business can be done, uh, you know, over the internet and and uh, cell phones, basically. So I see a fundamental change just in general, you know, in business uh, and certainly in the nuclear fuel side. Although I think it's still important as we got, you know, get back to term contracting um, for the face-to-face uh, sit down in the office. Actually, a couple of the big U.S. utilities, I had tentatively planned to go and visit them because they said, yeah, let's let's sit down and, you know, kind of roll up the sh- shirt sleeves and say, what is going on out there? And so I think you really can only do that almost face to face. What I found with the utilities is then they bring in other departments. There might be somebody from risk management, somebody from treasury, just to hear, you know, an outside opinion on what's going on in the market. So, you know, it's a shame that that's kind of been put on the back burner for now, but uh, hopefully that, you know, things loosen up to where that can happen. Well, hopefully they'll take some road trips, Dustin, get in their vehicles, take some uh, solo road trips and meet up in some remote places. I can think of many in the uh, Great Basin. So uh, good. Well, hey, I think we've beat this up uh, pretty well today. We've covered a lot of topics. Just closing out here, what is the best way for the audience to reach out to you if you'd like to provide that information? Uh, Well, again, uh, you know, I'm always available, uh, usually email, just sometimes it's just because of timing. And I can be reached at dustin.garrow at gmail.com. So it's just my name with a dot. And and that's probably the best way. I have a yellow cake uh, email, but I think in general, if people have questions, comments, want to have a talk, I'm clearly around certainly these days. So uh, always happy to respond. Okay. And I understand you keep up to date just a little bit on LinkedIn as well. Yes. Well, very well. Well, Dustin, uh, always great to chat. Thanks for the insights and uh, stay well, my friend, and we'll chat again soon. Okay. Sounds good. And good luck to everyone out there and uh, stay safe.